Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Patty James, chair of the club's new nutrition, food, and wellness member-led forum. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Alyssa Eppel, author of The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Dr. Eppel is a leading psychologist who studies stress, aging, and obesity. She is the director of UCSF's Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion Center and is associate director of its Center for Health and Community. Dr. Eppel also co-wrote The Telomere Effect, the revolutionary approach to living younger, healthier, longer, with Nobel laureate Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who will be moderating tonight's event. A reminder to our audience, if you have a question for Dr. Eppel or Dr. Blackburn, please submit those in the YouTube chat. Now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Alyssa Eppel and Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Patty. Well, tonight I'm going to ask Alyssa some questions about her new book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. And um, Alyssa and I, we're not only colleagues and friends, but also, as Patty mentioned, we're also co-authors, because inspired by our findings on stress and telomeres, we'll mention a little bit more later, we co-wrote the book, The Telomere Effect. Now, this covered the basic science of one aspect of aging um, and and how lifestyle and stress affect rates of cell aging, particularly uh, telomere maintenance. And telomeres and stress have a very real relationship, but there are more aspects to each than we covered in that book. And so Alyssa's new book, The Stress Prediction, takes us much more deeply into stress. First, we're going to talk about how stress relates to how cells age, particularly how our telomeres wear down, and we'll go into that relationship. And then I want to ask Alyssa questions about her new book, The Stress Prescription. And very importantly, in the course of this, we're going to be talking about science-based ways that you can reduce daily stress. So Alyssa, let me start off by asking you to share with the audience how your own journey into understanding stress first began, and then how that led into the journey of understanding stress, first of all, in the context of cell aging. Thank you, Liz. It's so nice to be giving a talk with you again, even if it's virtual. And thanks to the Commonwealth Club for hosting us. So it was really way back in I probably 2001 that I first arrived at UCSF and working with Nancy Adler and this health psychology program was really pursuing this question of how does stress get under the skin? How could we measure the effects of stress on health beyond something like blood pressure, where we know stress increases blood pressure. And if that goes on and on, it might turn into hypertension, but really wanting to understand at the cellular level, what was there an imprint of stress? Was it lasting? Could we see it even in young people? And so that led me to read this basic science of of cell aging, which was really all over the map, but a very consistent theme that kept coming up was our growing understanding of how telomeres contribute to the aging of organisms. 
And that to me was just miraculous to, to think and that we could actually measure this mechanism, the tips of the chromosomes, um, these telomere caps, that we could possibly measure them in large groups of humans and understand what might shorten them besides genetics and the clock ticking chronological age. And so that is about when I came knocking at your door, Liz. <laughs> it was just also amazing to me that you were here at UCSF and that that was the system I wanted to study. And so I was very hopeful and you opened your door so graciously. And then we brought in our third colleague in this big, long um, journey, Jolin, who was also a postdoc at that time. And in that first study, you know, we had, I think no one had measured telomerase in normal cells. And so it was this question of, can you do it? Can you, can you use this assay that was used for measuring telomerase levels in cancer cells to, you know, 10 times higher? And I think for me, I collected cells of women who are under chronic stress and care and control. So caregivers and controls. And I brought you the cells and then the rest was really a mystery of what happened in your lab. <laughs> but you and Ju really um, optimized this assay so that we were able to measure the low levels of telomerase so, with such granularity, so carefully. And then the big question was, does that measure, let's say of this anti-aging enzyme telomerase, does that correlate, does that match up with the level of stress this, this group of women was feeling? And I remember just seeing that correlation, seeing those dots line up. It was a pretty strong correlation for what we see in, in mind-body connections. And my heart was racing and I, and I emailed you immediately. And so that's, I, th I think you um, called, I think we used the old fashioned means of the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I called you. I was like, that doesn't sound right. We don't pick up the phone these days. <laughs> What did I say? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> I, I knew, I can't remember the words, but you definitely uh -huh. were excited because there was a very real quantifiable relationship between the degree of stress and, the, uh, and these measures of telomere maintenance. Yes. And it lined up for the other cell aging measures we had for telomere length, for level of oxidative stress. And it wasn't just the feelings of stress that was associated with cell aging. It was also the years of caregiving, the duration. So that was our first study. And from there, it's been a, a wild ride of um, being able to measure the cell aging system in many different samples. And the field just has grown so much. And then other colleagues like Owen Wolkowitz has taken this to the mental health area. So we now know depression is... Uh, pretty consistently associated with this cell aging system as well, at least shorter telomeres. Yes, it's it's one of the aspects mm -hmm. of how cells age through our many decades of, of life. And, uh, and, and people didn't know if it was going to be something that could be affected by uh, things that affect our health, because we knew that telomeres shortening has an effect on cells being able to replenish and be healthy. And that in turn, contributes if the telomeres are not made properly when the cells telomeres wear down too much then cells can't function and in fact 
That shortness can cause heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia, reduced cognitive function, and even certain cancers. Um, and that's been shown by causal reasons, but very importantly, by studies of the kind Lissa talks about and many, and many studies that relate the uh, association of shorter telomeres with many risks of common kinds of conditions or diseases. So that's why we cared about this. And, and, and as you will hear, so importantly, why we care about stress, because it, this is one of the very direct ways stress has bad effects on our cells. And we're going to talk more about the kinds of stress that we're talking about, because I think that's a really important point about your your book. But basically, you know, things that keep telomeres maintained included things like exercise and eating a healthy diet. But it turned out that having bad chronic stress over and over again is related to having shorter telomeres and hence there's risks of these um, diseases in humans and therefore, you know, threats to, to our long-term health. Mm -hmm. So now, 18 years later, Liz... And this measure of telomere length has been in so many human studies showing prediction of early disease and early, even early mortality. And, and at the same time, this field of aging is just blown up with so many measures, biomarkers that people use of aging. And so I, I would love to hear how you view telomeres in the, you know, in the context of all the other ways we measure aging. Yes, yes. Well, I think and very much inspired by the kind of work we've done together, we think of it in a, in a very sort of integrative way. It's it's one kind of readout of, of a whole very integrated set of systems that go on in our bodies. And there are various ways that cell age. Cells age, their proteins, you know, get less um, protected and less functional. There's so many different ways. So what I'm excited about is we know telomeres reflect a lot of aspects of aging. They cause some aspects of aging. And in human studies, we often see effects of telomere shortness related in a kind of statistical way, and the predictions are not that strong. But what's been very exciting in recent human studies coming up, it is when you have all these different aspects of aging, telomere is one aspect. But if you combine the degree of telomere shortness as a predictor with something else as a predictor, something as simple as frailty, or pre-frailty, which relates to how strong and how, you know, heartily, heartily somebody can walk. If you combine those two together and look at the degrees of those, you find that those together are much more powerful at predicting, you know, serious cardiovascular events and death um, in, in people if you follow them on. And, um, and, and even other aspects of life that impinge on our ability to stay healthy, such as socioeconomic uh, conditions, if you combine that actually with telomere measures, the two actually synergistically predict even more, of all things, risks of dementias. So there's new studies coming out where you combine telomere measures with other things. I'm really excited about that because it's getting at the mm -hmm. complexity of all of the things that are going on as we age and lose our health. But it's not just looking at it in isolation. It's trying to understand the whole interactive system. So these are studies in their early stages, but I'm, I'm excited about this because yes. for so long we looked at telomeres 
carefully isolating that mm-hmm. factor from others because that's how you do science, but it's not how mm-hmm. human bodies work. <laughs> Things right. all work and together. <laughs> exactly. And aging is so complex and multifactorial and there are different you know, t- ways that we age. And so it's so lovely that we, we know there's a consistent but small, robust effect of telomere length alone. But then when we, and, and it's reflecting how long, in part, how long can our cells from dividing tissues keep going, dividing, replenishing, creating new tissue in important areas of our body, like the brain and the cardiovascular lining. And, and so it's about replicative senescence, how, how much our cells can keep going on and dividing. But then you take something like frailty, you know, that's really about whole body aging, and you combine that to this molecular measure about immune, well, particularly we measure in immune cells. Um, and so that is incredibly useful. And I, I look forward to when we have, you know, better algorithms that people can use, you know, clinical algorithms that incorporate telomeres. But I think they may not have to be so complex. We look at huge amounts of bio, bioinformatic yeah. data and huge amounts of, you know, gene expression data and so forth. And, um, but but certain things, I think, capture it. It's amazing that frailty, you know, which is such a vague sounding thing, and telomere length, which we measure in so many different cells all at once, you'd think, does this really show you something systemic? But I think it starts to show systemic things. One of the things mm-hmm. that I know you're, you're really interested in is, you, you know, telomeres, when they run down in immune cells, they also make cells not function so well and, and put out more inflammatory signals. And I know you're very interested in the inflammatory aspects of aging, and perhaps you would like to talk a little bit more about that and, and stress. Yes, yes. And then and you might want to comment, um, getting a little more, driving down a little more molecular, but what we see at the clinical level, we, we and others have now measured different aspects of types of stress and adversity. And so what's so interesting is that when we look at different types of stress, we know the types that really do wear down these cell aging systems. So early life adversity, particularly in a dose response fashion, uh, early trauma when when we're children, or even severe stress to a pregnant mother that also predicts short telomeres in the offspring. So we know that that childhood is a very imprinting time for t- this system, the telomere length. It's, it, it's also true that in some studies, chronic stress uh, is... That gets me to something that I think at this point would be great to introduce because we use this word stress. And, yes. um, you know, in some cultures, there are large numbers of words for the word snow, right? There are many subtleties. We use a single word, stress, but you know, because you taught me this, that stress is a lot of different things. And one of the things that I remember you told me that was very helpful, and and it comes through in your book, but in different phrasings, is you use the term challenge stress, which is good stress. You see that as a challenge. And you distinguish that sort of response to stress by people versus another term called stress sorry, threat stress, where it's seen as a threat. And I found that shorthand, and I know it's a shorthand, you're much more specialized in this deeper understanding of all the nuances of stress. 
But I found that a very helpful shorthand. And could you tell us a bit more about that? Because I think that it pervades your new book, this thinking. Uh, mm -hmm. But is that shorthand still a helpful way of thinking about it? Challenge, stress versus? Yes, absolutely. It's fundamental for us to realize that a, a lot of the stresses we go through are good stress, but even more importantly, what we make of it, we can have a good stress response to short-term stressors. And so challenge and threat stress are just two very fundamental ways for us to understand the stress response. So psychologically, when we think of challenge stress, think of when you're you're putting yourself in situations that are, there's risk, there's stakes, there's opportunity. You know, we're often trying to achieve things that means we're, we're taking risks. So sports psychology is very focused on, on challenge stress. You want, it's incredibly stressful to perform or to form in any way, giving a speech, but also um, in terms of athletic performance. And so you really want to be focusing all of your energy on the meaning and purpose of this, that there's opportunity for gain, that you're doing this because you care, that you're doing this for love. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why we push ourselves to grow and take these risks. And so that's part of the psychological positive challenge response. And we measure that in the lab. My colleague, Wendy Mendez, has done you know, fundamental work on this, showing that when we can induce and help people have a positive challenge response to some stressful task, they perform better. They have more positive emotion. Their, their whole blood response, their hemodynamic cardiovascular response is different. It's this tremendous output of, um, from the heart, oxygenating the brain. And that's really different than that more threatened response. And so that more of like the freeze flee response instead of the fight response is more characterized by vasoconstriction and fear and anxiety. So we often think of that as like the lion is chasing the gazelle. The lion is having this positive challenge response because the lioness, she wants dinner and this is an opportunity, but it's still a physiological stress response. The gazelle is feeling threat for her life. So she's having a very different response. So we can think about that in terms of psychological response. We can also stress out our body and we can talk more about that, but we can create positive stress in the body in these short-term bursts that is most definitely stress reducing. It's metabolizing stress in the body. And at the cellular level, it's creating a very um, kind of profound, fundamental, positive stress response we call hormetic stress, which is very much uh, um, turning on these healthy mechanisms that help the cell. We know from our acute stress studies, when we stress people out in a very short-term way, telomerase goes up. Telomerase is a defense system. It's stress responsive, protecting the telomeres. So I think this takes us right into, into the, your, your new book, which is really about this and talks so much about the different kinds of stress and really sort of unpacks the distinctions between, you know, this term stress, which I think people can misunderstand and, and think, oh, you just have to sort of avoid everything in life that would give you stress. Well, you know, <laughs> your book talks about the fact that, of course, that's not possible. It's about how you respond to stress. So, so let's, let's, let's turn now fully to, to your book so we can explore all of these topics and, and, and 
can I ask you, first of all, what motivated you to write this book? People loved understanding telomeres and that they have telomeres and that they're in every cell and that they're something partly under our control. We can protect our telomeres. And that stress chapter just brought up so many questions. People loved to understand how our stress response was related. And so in that book, we introduced the idea that chronic toxic stress and trauma was wearing to the telomeres, um, but that we could promote this kind of positive um, stress response, make stress work for us, have a quicker, more efficient stress response. And that actually is good for us, good for our coping, good for our health. And so the book kind of fleshes out those ideas in seven chapters, <laughs> you know, each, each aspect. And while we don't, I didn't talk about telomeres much in the book, this is what, what we know is that we're all living with way too much perceived stress. Daily stress is high. Most people feel 46% of the adult popul U.S. population feels overwhelmed by stress. That's absolutely absurd. That's so out of hand. And we know the effect on our health and our aging. And so it's really a medical issue. And so I love um, the idea of thinking of it as a prescription because we know we take prescriptions for medical conditions very seriously. And we need to take this seriously as well. We need to really try to um, create, disrupt the daily stress habits that we're in. And so there are lots of different ways to do that. But I was most motivated by realizing how everyone, majority of people feel they're under too much stress. And we know from science so many different ways we can reduce stress. In addition to yoga, meditation, and exercise, those are fabulous lifestyles, habits, and they help a lot. But there are a lot of other ways too. And so the structure was very interesting. Seven, seven days worth. It, you know, it's it's a, it's a seven days, right? Is is how it's described in your book. By the way, I have multiple copies of this book because I'm giving it to my friends and family as well. And because I think it's really a very helpful book for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about about the seven days. Well. Why why seven days? Um, is that mm -hmm. something? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear why. Yes. So I think thinking of what we can do within a day is so useful because we we live within the unit of time of a day. We think about each day as fresh and new and we recover from a day by reflecting on the day. And so how we wake up and how we recover are so important to our emotional well-being, and so we can wake up mindlessly with an alarm and a you know to-do list and grab this and and that's a habit, a common habit, and I I um, am guilty of doing that often. But we can also choose to wake up and orient our body and mind toward having a a, a day. A, a day of ease and joy, not just stress. And so we, so I talk about different tips for those bookends, but the seven days is really, we also want to have help that's not going to, you know, be a 400 page book that takes months to read. And so it's really, our attention span is about 
a seven day book <laughs> is about um, the length of that. So the idea was just really reduce the science and the practices into seven fundamental tips and people could read it in a week, but of course to incorporate it, take your time, you know, choose one habit, try it every day for a week, try the book with a partner. So it, it shouldn't stress you out. You shouldn't get the book and think I have to learn all of this in seven days. <laughs> added stress. And, and, and what's your biggest hope? What do you most hope that people will get from it? There's so much one can get from it. What, what do you most mm-hmm. hope people will get from it? Uh, well, let's see. I'll talk about two, two big points of the book. So one is understanding our mind-body connection, our personal mind-body connection. And we're not just either on, awake, and then off, we go to sleep. We have all of these levels of arousal from high stress arousal, that red red dot at the top, all the way down to deep blue mind states, which are relaxing. And so, so, so the picture in the cover is depicting sort of this whole set of different states, which you, you describe all the way from red to blue states of Oh, no, I don't know if it's, yeah, states of mind, right? Yes, yeah, states of mind. And so we certainly know when we're in red mind. I mean, you know, this is like the whole body, the heart is is pounding and we know we're, um, it feels terrible. We're, we're dealing with some stressor or my, maybe it's exciting. We're dealing with a positive challenge and we need that stress response. That's why we're here. We would never survive. Our ancestors would never have survived if we didn't have this beautiful immediate stress response. And the problem is that, we don't necessarily recover and turn that off quickly and, and live in a relaxed state. We live in more what we call yellow mind, which is like we're holding on to stress, either ruminating about what happened or worrying about what's going to happen next, anticipating, being vigilant. And so it might even be unconscious that we're just holding stress in our body. Like right now, to all of you listening, like just ask, are your hands relaxed? Are your shoulders relaxed? What are you holding on to? And just quick check-ins like that can help us notice that we're not relaxed. We're carrying stress with us. And when it's strong like that, it just becomes chronic stress, like a habit. And so that default mode of how we spend most of our time in yellow mind is something we can all become more aware of. We, We inevitably set ourselves up for that when we're rushing, right? We plan a whole day that's intense and back to back. And of course, our, our body's not going to be um, in a true relaxed space when we in yellow mind. So these quick mindful check-ins can help. And then green mind is when we're really um, truly relaxed. We can get that from being in nature. Our bodies are very attuned to the sensory signals and the safety signals within nature. And then deep deep rest or blue mind is more of a rare state, but it's very restorative. And we have a whole paper on my website led by Alexandra Croswell that really describes and helps us understand, ah, there's a state that we're missing. And if we can do some things, feel safe, sequester ourselves, put a short amount of time aside and actually let ourselves truly relax. Usually this is a mind body activity, yoga nidra, meditation, um, massage. You, there's all sorts of ways like the Shavasana out of after yoga. These are deeply restorative states when our heart rate variability can increase and our parasympathetic nervous system can be dominant. And of course we get deep rest when we're sleeping and especially in deep sleep. And that's our most restorative state our body's ever in, but we can give our body breaks 
at least once a week in these blue mind states as well. So I think just understanding and checking in and saying, do I need to be stressed right now? And doing these release exercises, like give breathing exercises and ways to mindfully check in and release or catch and release stress, including uncertainty stress. We're always kind of vigilant about the future, even if we're not realizing it. So, so could you expand more on, on, on the strategies for, for how to reduce these, um, you know, these harmful responses to stress? Not reducing stress per se in the sense that we can't always reduce external stressors, but strategies for how we uh, modulate, reduce our poor responses to stress, how we make responses, good responses to stress. Could you? I know you talk about mm-hmm. it in the book, but I think people would love to hear uh, a preview of, of. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think if if I were to you know, cut to the chase and ask someone about their, their, um, what their stress habits are. You know, I'd want to look at their day. I'd want to know, do they, do they have some positive red mind and deep rest states? So like kind of being in this murky, you know, subtle level of arousal, yellow mind state, we can go on the whole day like that without releasing it through positive hermetic stress in our body, like exercise, or there are other ways to, or really consciously relaxing and doing some slower breathing. That's an incredibly fast and direct way to reduce the stress that we hold in our nervous system and, and slow our heart rate and increase our heart rate variability. So just having the idea that we each need some of these kind of green and blue mind states every day, as well as some of the positive stress, at least in our body. And so there are other ways besides um, high intensity interval training or a quick burst of aerobic exercise. There's there's heating up the body. So there's sauna and that helps with cardiovascular health, but also with mood, with stress, depression, anxiety. There's also cooling the body, cold showers or ice. And that is starting to be more studied. And there's all sorts of old literatures like cryotherapy and how that can help depression and and other um, chronic, uh, more emotional conditions. And we've been studying as, as I think we've talked about Liz, this Wim Hof method. So this increasing our um, positive stress through extreme breathing, some breath holding, and also the cold showers. And in so far, we found that that works to take a chunk out of stress and depression just as well as meditation and exercise. So there are many paths to reducing daily stress and people just need to, you know, experiment and find what works for them, but probably trying some of the both high arousal and low arousal strategies is a best strategy. So, so, so to understand this a bit more, so you're saying there's a tremendous number of different ways and kinds and modes of, of, achieving these better mind states and reducing one's, you know, harmful responses to, to stress. But you, you've laid out many, many different fascinating possibilities. How, how is a person to navigate through there? How, how will they start? Mm-hmm. They say they know they always right. come home from work or, you know, finish their day of Zooms of work these days in, you know, a, a red to yellow state. How, how to begin? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's the way to begin to get somebody on this path, given mm-hmm. that there are so many, uh, you know, such a menu of, of, of... Yes, yes. And what I was talking about was 
changing the body to change the mind, either going to low arousal states or high arousal states. Um, but there are so ways to, um, other ways. So one is, um, certainly we can talk about top-down strategies, changing how we, our beliefs about stress and mindset. But let me just mention one that I know you use a lot, Liz, which is change the scene. And that is um, getting out in nature. Yes, yes. And I'm yes. very lucky that I have the opportunity to do that. So that's, that's, that's one thing that one, one can do if you have the opportunity to go walking or sometimes to travel to parts of the world that are awe-inspiring. And you write in your book about how awe is something, A-W-E, not O-A-R, awe is something that itself has stress-reducing properties, which I found was truly, truly fascinating because that to me is so intrinsic to, you know, why I love being in in nature. But 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 to sort of come back to a little bit more of the sort of practical, you know, let's say you know you're somebody who always is in this yellow to red state at the end of their day of work mm-hmm. or throughout their day. Um, are, there, are there things that you can s- start to say to them to get them on the road to... Um, Yes. So we'll talk about that. That's, you know, starts with a stress assessment. But before we leave awe, I did notice um, that Dacher Keltner, who studies awe, is speaking soon here at the Commonwealth Club. And awe is really a transformative emotion. And Liz, that's how you and I have met over the last few years, since we're not, haven't been in our office much with COVID, was really walking in your neighborhood. And I always love how you notice new things and you're pointing out you know, a beautiful bloom or garden to me or a view. And, and that is really what the, that nature chapter is about. It's not just that we want to be in a forest or notice greenery in our home, but to actually really immerse ourselves in our senses. So looking and see, you know, seeing things very carefully and close up and touching leaves or trees and smelling the air. So all of those put us put us in a sensory or experiential state. And that is kind of an antidote to stress. We can't both be in this um, awe state or a, you know, state of, of opening our sensory gates and highly stressed at the same time. So, so that's how I think about nature is that it's a, it's a way where we don't have to think our way out of stress, um, but rather just let our body do, the unwinding for us by opening our senses. Okay, so you are wondering where to start. I would I would say that most of us could benefit from stepping back and and reflecting on the different stressful situations in our lives. So taking a stress inventory, and there are ways in the in um, the book I lead people to just write freely every situation that's weighing on them or making them pressure or something that's unwanted, unwanted situations. And so just it's this, it can be this enormous free floating list and then really noticing what on this list is out of my control. What is something I completely don't control or maybe there are aspects of this situation that I control. So it's really, it's really kind of creating a bucket of, I don't control this. There's, this is a gray area bucket, some of the situation I control or completely in my control. And what we often realize is that so much of what is upsetting us are situations that 
we have very little control over. And the freedom that comes with understanding and seeing that we're spinning wheels or ruminating or doing a lot of problem solving about things that we really can't change can be very liberating and is, is a really big way to kind of reduce the burden of stress that we carry around. And then, of course, there are ways to focus on those things that we can control, like asking, are there any of these situations that I can actually delete, decide that I'm going to take this out of my schedule or, or cross this obligation off or delegate it to someone else? And sometimes there are no, there's nothing we can delete. But often with really honest, careful reflection, there are ways that we can reduce the density of responsibilities, meetings, ways that we fill up our time to create spaciousness. And so that stress inventory can be very helpful for people because if we're rushing, we just can't. We've ruled out the possibility of having breaks during the day and we've kept kind of that red mind state or, you know, the alarms on all day. And that's very hard to feel the joy in life, feel the, the opportunities in front of us, even just reading someone else's emotions and, and connecting with someone intimately. It's very hard to do that in red and yellow mind. And it's wonderfully um, easy when we're actually in our body and letting go of, you know, the worrying rumination and the worrying that we carry. So so then let's say one has done the inventorying and one now has a better sense of those control, in control, not in control things. What, where would you lead people next on this path to helping them take the next steps? Would, would it be exercise? Would it be, mm-hmm. you know, joining, you know, what, what, what's the sort of process? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so it would be, um, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> well, what did you, um, you know, I think there are, there's the different ways of creating um, stress to our body, hot, cold exercise, extreme breathing. There are ways that we can, create a, um, a safe, let's say green, um, corner of the house or room or actually being out in nature. And that might be a place that someone does either slow breathing or prayer or meditation. And, you know, it's always wonderful if it fits in your, um, religion or, belief system. So it's, it's a, it's kind of a fill in the blank prescription. Like we could all do well these days with all the existential stress with having, waking up and having a, a, a vow, something that's meaningful to us that we say, or a prayer or setting an intention. And so the same words. Um, so I offer different, different, ideas of what might be meaningful to people and they really need to choose. So what about for you, Liz? Did you um, try anything new or, you know, notice that you were already doing some of these stress prescriptions? Well, I've, I've had the good luck to be able to go walking. You know, I walk almost daily and uh, 
I certainly do try and notice my body, the prompt that you gave for us to feel are our shoulders tense or our hands tense. I do try and check in a lot with that and then consciously try to, you know, re relax that. Um, the, the one that did strike me was one that I hadn't thought of as reducing stress, and that's the one we talked about before, which was awe, the the feeling of awe and wonder and so forth. And not just in nature. You know, we're, we're sometimes awed at just, you know, a book we're reading in a marvelous way somebody has of describing something. I mean, we can have awe for the talent of, of somebody or extraordinary painting. We just have awe for that, you know, work of art that was, was created. So I think awe can come in, in lots of ways. And so to me, reading mm -hmm. the book and seeing that awe was actually part of uh, what you're prescribing in this stress prescription, that for me was, was a, a, a new revelation. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I think that uh, you you talk about hormetic stress, uh, and and you explain what that means. But in a way, it sort of seems to be partly encompassed in the idea of challenge stress. Is that is that too simple? Uh, I mean, hormetic stress means you actually put a stress on your body, but in a short shorter term, so you, you can recover. And presumably, it's something that you have control over. Right, mm -hmm. the the, yes. the hormetic stress uh, concept. That, I think that's a great point. They're very um, there's some commonalities of um, the types of positive stress we put ourselves through mentally, and when we put our body through that. And I I like to think of um, when we're putting ourselves under hormetic stress. If we're doing you know high intensity interval training or a cold shower it's very easy to have a threat response and say, oh, you know, this feels terrible. Like if the cold shower makes you gasp and tense up and it's stressful. And so, and you know, that's a, that's a normal threat response that we have, even if it's mild, but we can promote this positive response so that we're not also triggering an emotional stress response with a lot of cortisol by reminding ourselves, oh, this is actually good for me this is an opportunity for my body that my body loves this. My body is excited. So we can say some of these statements during this positive body stress or hermetic stress so that we're actually pushing our comfort zone and relaxing into it at the same time. So knowing it's not a threat stress, like being really cold could mean, well, you're out stuck in, in a snowstorm and you'd better do something. That's a real threat to your you know, existence. But the cold, you're saying, ah, I'm in control of this. I did this cold and this is not hurting me. I'm not in danger. So I can be cold, even though one's normal reaction is usually a pretty self-preserving reaction to you know, right. sudden cold. And, <laughs> and we need to be sensitive when we're talking about cold these days, right? Given... Um, the, the the snowstorms etc back east really everywhere because it's really it's wonderful if you have to rush to the car you can go through that and say you know my body loves this in a short term burst and it can handle this and then it's going to recover once you're in the warm car but <laughs> there's a real difference between the you know getting too cold that when it becomes too many minutes and and so short term Hormetic stress is really short bursts and then recovery, short bursts and recovery. And, and so same with psychological stress. So, so Liz, when you think about hormetic stress, I mean, as a, 
as a basic scientist or biologist, it's, it's, it's been, it's a very old idea. So what do you think of? Oh, I'm, I'm learning about it. This is, this is quite far from my molecular biology training, but I do know that mm-hmm. cells have responses to stress that, again, allow them to deal with, uh, you know, biochemical kinds of insults and cells set programs into motion inside themselves that deal with stress. So even down at the level of inside cells, they're responding in, you know, in, in various kinds of ways that are appropriate to the nature of the stress. They, they, they respond. So it's sort of fascinating that it's such an all, all-encompassing um, concept, stress. And, and in fact, you know, we're getting to the time where we want to turn to questions. And in fact, the questions which are coming in actually is really, I think, come very directly from this. So if I can, we'll turn to these questions because I think it'll allow you to expand more on, for example, the the um, these concepts of stress that we're talking about. And one question is, what is the biggest misconception about stress? Um, one of the attitudes we have about stress is that all stress is bad. And, and I think even stress researchers like me are responsible or guilty of promoting that because we use the word stress as this umbrella term and it you know it covers we then kind of think well any type of stress is bad and just that thought is bad for us so there's like very lovely research on stress mindsets showing that when we believe well let me just make it clear that chronic toxic stress really is wearing and there's not much controversy about that but most of the stress we're talking about um, breaks down to daily stress or events or shorter term stress. And that it really is, can be, have hormetic qualities or challenge positive, challenge stress qualities. So there's research showing that when we believe that stress is bad, damaging, is hurting us, then when we go through a lab stressor or short term stress, we actually get more stressed by it and we have a bigger physical response and slower recovery. And so there's kind of a blossoming of research on stress mindset by Aliyah Krum and others. And conversely, it shows that when you focus on the benefits of stress, when you believe stress is good for me, it helps me grow, it challenges me in a good way, it's good for my body, all of that is also true. And if you believe that, it's more true. So it's amazing, but our beliefs are shaping our stress response in these self-fulfilling ways. So it's very important for us to focus on these positive benefits of stress and go into a stressful situation, reminding ourselves, my body can handle this. I'm, I'm prepared for this. I will get through this. Whatever we're saying to ourselves in those moments matters because our body is listening, our stress response is responding. So we might as well go with these positive statements. And then that leads us actually into into the next question from from our audience, which is, do you have advice for caregivers in dealing with stress management or for dealing with stress management? I think you already started to... um, Well, I I will say my heart goes out to... Um, all caregivers 
regardless of there's so many different types of caregiving. And usually when we study them, we've done a lot of studies on them. Our first study was of parents, of mothers of children with chronic conditions. We often study uh, family dementia caregivers, so people caring for a partner or a parent. And the, the caregiving stress really is one of the hardest types of situations because it goes on for years and years and caregivers often give up their own self-care and they often suffer health problems. So there's a lot of studies showing the stress effects of chronic caregiving, like slower wound healing. And in our study, shorter telomeres. So the good news is in our studies of caregiving, it's really not just being a caregiver that predicts these. It's really the response to the stressor. So um, when we're feeling overly stressed and develop depression and are, um, don't have a lot of resources, you know, that's the, that's when caregiving really starts to take its toll. But many caregivers look like controls and they are, they're having different aspects of resilience. There's no question that maintaining a healthy lifestyle is incredibly important for caregivers. So exercise is incredibly important for breaking up the caregiving stress. And Eli Putterman with us, Liz, showed that um, elderly dementia caregivers who are sedentary, when they exercise, he took one group and randomized them and had them exercise for six months. Six months later, they had less depression, less daily rumination, and longer telomeres than the control group. So we do think that, you know, maybe that finding wouldn't show up in non-caregivers. It was a pretty dramatic finding, but it's when you're under stress, exercise can have such a strong stress buffering effect. It can also help with depression. It's important for caregivers to take respite seriously and to ask for support and to know there's a caregiver's bill of rights that, that they might benefit from reading online that describes you have a right to take care of yourself and to put yourself first. And it's hard to care for someone when you can't care for yourself. So that oxygen mask analogy of put your own mask on first. Another aspect of caregiver stress is realizing that you can't control someone else's illness or health behaviors and really just doing what you can and not striving harder. And I really like to think in those types of uncontrollable stressful situations of like pulling a rope that's tied to a brick wall and you can pull and, and pull and the wall hasn't moved and your hands chafe and you're exhausted. But if you drop the rope, and you say, this is, you know, I'm not going to be able to move that wall. You freed up your hands to do the little bits that you can for your own self-care, for the, for being present and compassionate with the person you love. And, and another question takes us to another kind of situation of stress. And this question is, a lot of us encounter stress at work. Are there companies that are doing or providing innovative resources to help their employees deal with stress? Oh, well, certainly that's... Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a great question. And this brings us to, again, this, this question of understanding what we control and what we can't control. 
And work stress is a tricky one because while, of course, there are workplaces, um, some are very enlightened and enriched and allow a lot of employee control over their time and give them a lot of um, both responsibility but control, aspects of control. That That's very helpful. But many industries like healthcare, <laughs> like our institution, there is there are structural reasons that we are so prone to burnout. When the demand is too high, the resources are too low, there's not enough staff, and there are, you know, there's not a feeling of equity or control or getting credit for your work. All of those pieces are very important to, to help prevent burnout. And so when we tell someone to meditate, when they're working in a, a environment that's promoting burnout, that really does have these structural ways of depleting us, then it's, it's not going to work. It only goes so far. And so really it's both these kind of banding together and, and really trying to create a healthier work structure and environment, as well as offering the individual strategies, you know, time out for self-care, meditation rooms at work. Those are all great if we also are um, not creating burnout in the first place. So it's, it's always a, something we're, we still haven't solved at a national level. And that's why we're having, you know, certainly the great retirement has hit, uh, let's say medicine and healthcare in a big way. Another question from our audience has come in, which is, can you talk about the role, if any, that gender plays in stress? Perhaps that relates to some of these workplace uh, situations that you're talking about. That that the question was, does mm-hmm. gender play a role in stress? Mm-hmm. It it absolutely does, and when we think about well, first of all, women report more stress than men. Women also suffer from more depression than men. And when we look at the data, like the most recent twenty the most recent APA survey on stress in America, it's very revealing. Now, I said 46% of people report feeling overwhelmed by stress. But when you look at who is most stressed, there is, it's, it's very much depends on who you ask. So women more than men, young people more than older people, and people of color or groups that are discriminated against are feeling the most stress. And so when you think about overlap um, or you know this idea of intersectionality, then we have young women who are also people of color having the absolute highest levels of stress. They have the least structural control, least power, most discrimination. So there are structural factors working against them as well as being of lower status given their age and, and so it's, it's very interesting. Old people over, when we um, look at the data on feeling that you can't go on, you're so stressed you can't go on, the data is, shows that young women ha- are in the you know, very high levels in the 60%, but when you look at women over 65, it's more like less than 10%. So we, we see this tremendous resilience with aging. So we know that youth are vulnerable, or young adults are quite vulnerable, but we also should also ask, well, why are older people so resilient? 
yes, they have more loneliness, but they're not going to despair and daily stress like our young adults are. So there's a lot of beautiful research on the resilience with aging, the wisdom, the not sweating the small stuff, and the, the having these positive social networks that is something we can all learn from. Well, that might lead me to the next question, which is the converse. So you've told us about the increasing knowledge and understanding of, of resilience. Uh, well, what are some of the most absurd old wives' tales about stress? <laughs> Um, wondering what uh, I think uh, maybe it relates yeah. to our first question from the audience. You know, what are some of the real misconceptions about stress? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, would love. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, as a stress researcher. I'm you know, I'm always just focused on what is stress. What do people think stress is? And if you ask an economist, they think you know it's unemployment and divorce. Um, if you ask a, um, a psychologist, it's feelings of stress. If you ask a physiologist, it's cortisol. So we're all talking about different things. And all of these are related. So these things that happen to us may cause more feelings of stress. They may cause a physical reaction. But, these, but I'll just say that these um, correlations are a lot lower than anyone would think. They're not at all the same thing. There's so much um, variance in how we respond, different people respond to different events, both emotionally and physically. Hmm. Hmm. So people sort of assume that everybody, a misconception or an absurd idea is that somehow everyone's going to have the same reaction. Is that? Or just that, you know, stress is the same thing as cortisol. Yes. And, and you know, really, it, it does make me think over and over again. I've thought, well, do we need some better language to describe stress? You know, like the cultures who describe, who have many words for snow. We have one word mm-hmm. in the English language, snow, right? But there's so many different forms. Should should you lead a movement to uh, have, not, not be overly technical, but just have a little more precision so people right. don't have misconceptions because it can be so helpful when one understands what's going on. Well, it's funny that you say that, Liz. I almost for know that. Book, for your next book. Well, no, let me just mention we have a stress network at UCSF that um, many of us co lead that is about measurement. We have a toolbox. So if you type in UCSF stress network, you'll find that we actually are trying to do exactly that, Liz, for the field. We're trying to, funded by NIH, we're trying to have people um, be more specific about the types of stress that they're measuring in different studies and how, you know, looking at something like um, challenge stress to a situation is very different than looking at, you know, trauma reactions to early life adversity. So it's just, there's so many different measures and types. And and this may lead into um, a partial answer to the next question, which uh, has to be almost the last, but I'll have one more after this. But but the question was, did... Do, do, do we think that most doctors understand stress and, for example, stress and telomeres? Perhaps you're, and I'll just partly answer that, perhaps, perhaps you know, having this helpful, more precise definition of test stress will make it easier for doctors to be able to be asking the right questions, which then will relate better to whether there are threats that can be measured by, you know, statistically at least by things like telomeres and how they're maintained. Yes, that's a great answer. But um, the, I, I think we're out of time. And so to just have the very last question, which uh, 
how can we reduce stress in children? And and we'll have to be fairly brief in that answer. I love that question. I'm so concerned about our our children and our young adults right now in terms of their mental health. And we, as caregivers, as teachers, as parents, need to realize that managing our own stress is incredibly important, not just for our own well-being, but for being the um, the model, the pers- the co-regulator of the stress of our children. And so caregiver burnout and parental burnout during the pandemic was, you know, incredibly hard because it also children are incredibly perceptive about stress. So I think shielding them from, of course, the news when they're young enough, it's just so toxic and it gives them such a dark view of humanity and shielding them as much as possible from social media, which has more negative than positive effects on our youth. It's, it's also a increasing their sense of lo- of isolation, loneliness, unworthiness, and really creating these um, times when you can be with a child with no screens and help them talk about their feelings and express their anxiety through play and through, um, through you know, having them see that the world is we know how to solve problems rather than presenting oh, we have a climate crisis that we don't know how to solve and we we can't burden them with those those types of issues it's too much for for such young minds and the truth is that we do have the tech we do have we are moving toward solving these problems you wouldn't know it from the news but the amount of good things that are happening good actions every day from people we need to tell our kids about those and seek those out. And I love something like Tink's Good News. It's like a social media um, Instagram that tells you about beautiful and happy things happening every day to real people. It always makes me smile and laugh. Well, I think this is the time where we've uh, got to close. And what a great way, uh, what a great set of insights you've given us, not only throughout this whole program, but also in, this very last question was a great way to end. And so I just want to say, please join me. Thank you to Alyssa, author of The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. And <laughs> we encourage so every, much, everyone to pick up a copy of her book uh, at, at a local bookstore or wherever you can. And, and if you want more background on how telomeres work and the many things besides stress we can do to help stabilize telomeres and to help us respond to stress, uh, you, you can also look at the telomere effect. It was five years ago we co-published that, but um, the science really hasn't changed all that much, and we know we have to take care of them. So if you'd like to learn more about upcoming uh, in-person and virtual Commonwealth Club events, please visit, visit www.commonwealthclub.com or one word, dot org, slash events. So I'm Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, and thank you for the time that you've spent with us. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for all that you do and for participating, and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.